It's Something for Nothing, the Rush Fancast. Steve and Jerry with you. Hello, Jerry. Hey, Steve. What's going on? Uh, well, I've been home for eight weeks. That's what's going on. How about you? <laughs> yeah, I've been home from the same time. You know, uh, full disclosure, Jerry and I actually saw each other the other day. We met at a, at a park. We stood very far away from each other. We had to exchange something for the podcast. Right. And uh, it was uh, it was like we were mobsters or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> meeting at a park. It was good to see you, Jerry. Good to see you. Although it was very shady. You're definitely right. It was a shady meetup. Yeah, I was wearing sweatpants. It wasn't good. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter at RushFanCast, Instagram the RushCast, email Jerry. The emails keep pouring in. The RushCast at gmail.com. The base intro, as always, is done by our good pal Lex. We appreciate that. And uh, today on the RushFanCast, Jerry, we've got we've got an interview for you. Yeah. And since we have such a great interview, we decided we'll just get right into it. He's the author of more than 90 books on hard rock, heavy metal, prog rock, and punk, including the new book, Anthem Rush in the 70s. It's going to be released on Tuesday, May 12th. We welcome to the fan cast, Martin Popoff. Martin, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Very cool. Really appreciate you joining us. So, Martin, in the book, you talk a little bit about your early years in the introduction. What was your introduction to Rush? How did you first hear about the band, and how did you become a fan? I have a hard time remembering that. Um, the only thing I remember is that by the time 1976 rolled around, 2112 was being played in its entirety for the first time as a debut from Creme FM in Spokane, Washington. And, uh, you know, I was I was there ready, ready with two fingers to, you know, play and record to, to record. the thing. I was already. So at that point, I would have been 13. You know, I was me and my buddies. I mean, we were pretty woke and pretty, quote unquote, expert on all this stuff by probably two years earlier than that. So 11 years old. <laughs> uh, so so I knew Rush, but I don't know if I came in on the debut or a caress of st- or fly by night or fly by night or caress of steel certainly man three albums before that i'm certainly we were we were woke to russia by then but i just can't remember i don't have a specific memory before uh the recording of 2112 so this is your fourth book on rush right yeah what was the genesis of this particular book so essentially there was uh the contents under pressure book was which was an authorized biography of rush but that was only like a 66,000 word book it wasn't very long it's full color throughout it was like a like a cross between a coffee table book and a and a and a proper biography and then you know I thought okay that's it for me I'll never write another rush book then I got on with Voyager Press and did a whole bunch of big thick hardcover coffee table books for them and they had this illustrated history series and they explained to me what it was and i thought yeah i guess i can do that i use no outside press in contents under pressure so i thought okay this will be no overlap i'll I'll use outside press and plus they have like you know semi-famous journalists write uh, reviews of every album so that's fine so i thought okay now i'm done with rush and then they had another concept uh, this album by album concept and so uh, that was just talking with rush experts you know hopefully a few famous people uh, got kirk hammett in that um where we just go through a q a on every studio album so that had no overlap so i thought okay now i'm done with rush and then what happened was since my authorized biography was through ECW, and ECW is also the publisher of Neil's books, and I also worked on the movie Beyond the Lighted Stage. I was I was there for, I think, nine months straight, full-time, uh, at the research phase, looking up stuff, finding things, you know, talking about who to, who to interview and what would be the storylines and all that stuff. And I continued on working with Banger. 
this idea popped into my head that, you know, and I transcribed a lot of those interviews used in the movie and so much of it didn't get used. So this idea came up and I just basically approached them at the uh, banger barbecue one summer and said, what if I, what if I flipped you some money? And we, uh, you know, I was authorized to use whatever we didn't use in the movie. And they were all fine with that. Rush's lawyers, a buddy of mine, he was there as well, David. Um, he just said, yeah, go go talk to Scott. Go talk to Sam. Check it out with Peggy. Peggy was fine at the office. So basically, that's what we did. I didn't even know I was going to do this with ECW. I thought I was just going to self-publish something really cool. But then I went to ECW, and we sorted out a deal. And we were going to do one, you know, the mother of all Rush books. Just do one really good, big Rush book with all this cool, uh, you know, unused footage. Plus the old stuff. It's kind of an update of contents. And as I started writing, I realized I got enough for three books here. I mean, this first book, Anthem, is 126,000 words. Limelight's the same thing. And then, uh, which I just proofed today. I did a did a proof of all of Limelight. I uh, went through it for them. Um, and then the last one's going to be called Driven, Rush in the 90s, and in quote marks, in the end. So there's three books, all of the same length, all bigger than anything I've ever done. So that's the story. That's what's happening. We we had all this extra stuff. It didn't overlap with the other Rush books. Now I can say I'm done. Six Rush books, I can't do any more than that. That's it's crazy. <laughs> well, well, you know, it's funny you should uh, mention how it came about because it does read like a uh, like an oral history of Rush from the people who were there. Yeah, it is a lot like that. I mean, I've always prided myself on the books that I do. I want it to be in their their words. I want to take my ego out of it. I don't have any ego with this stuff. I mean, it's basically I revere the artists, let the artists speak. Having said that, I was also a little inspired by this uh, Clash and Led Zeppelin book I had to do, all the albums, all the songs for Voyager Press, where I had to basically write 400 to 500 words of analysis on every single song by the Clash and Led Zeppelin. So I thought, well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just throw my opinion in here a little more and my analysis in here a little more. So there's that. There's also the, there's the use of the outside press, plus the update on the old book. Plus all the banger stuff. So all of that combined, everything but the kitchen sink, that's that's why it, it came out to three books, basically. So, Martin, you go into great detail on Rush's childhood in this book, more than I've ever seen. How important do you think Rush's upbringing was in shaping the band? I think it's pretty important. I mean, people talk about this Canadianness and this groundedness, and they came from the suburbs and all this kind of thing, and they came from immigrant parents. And there's, you know, there's the the tragic stuff about the, you know, the Holocaust survivor aspect of Getty's parents. Um, but uh, yeah, there is a lot of that in there, and that was kind of cool to have all that in there. That's a really long chunk of this one. Obviously, it's not from the seventies. You know, the other books, the 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 last two will be will be more strictly on you know the albums at the time. Of course, also Neil's tragedies that happened. So yeah, I, I think so. I I think um, what you get as the band moves into uh, you know the big bad bad world of touring the United States and that they are grounded. They you know they aren't going on stage drunk and stoned. You know, they're not womanizing like crazy. They're basically uh, they're basically grounded Canadian guys. They're support, you know, their headline acts over them like them. They're not they're likable guys. They get along with guys like Kiss and everything. I mean, Kiss doesn't necessarily have to be the easiest band to get along with, but they do get along with them. Right. Um, 
So, I, yeah, I think when they go out there, they, they conduct themselves with integrity. Everybody likes them. Their word is their honor. And uh, as they move through life, um, they basically are, you know, pretty much scandal free, like Obama, right? You know, the old, <laughs> the old president, he's, he's, uh, he's scandal free, right? Russia's more or less scandal free as well. So um, I think they go through life that way. And uh, yeah, it, it, it stands them good coming from this good family life. Now, how rare is that, though, that they're scandal free? You've, you've done biographies on countless bands. Is that a rare thing? Yeah, that is rare. I mean, in my head now, I'm thinking of all the bands I've done books on. Um, and yeah, I, I think there's problems everywhere. There's a lot of member changes. Obviously, Rush is, is probably, you know, literally got to be in the top one or two percentile of bands that had stable lineups, uh, you know, having just one member change the whole time. So yeah, that that's pretty cool. And, you know, I, I don't know if it comes out in this book or it's more the, the, the next book or the next one, but there is this fact about Rush that they also keep employees in the organization a long, long time. There's a lot of loyalty in the employees over time. Uh, the, you know, people who are there forever, one manager right to the end, right? That kind of thing. I mean, that's even rare in itself. So uh, I think that tells you a little bit about how reasonable they are. Right. Does that work together? Like, is it part of their musical attitude and the attitude they bring that to their business? Like they're very focused on this and they want other people to also be focused on their business. So they keep bringing the same people back. Yeah. And, and they, they do have uh, you know, they have a level of quality they want to uphold a level of integrity they want to uphold, um, you know, and they know, they know also to, to, um, you know, delegate to everybody who, who needs delegating to, they also, you know, you think about the, the lighting show and the video and all that stuff, they're involved in all that, but they love to see people's careers grow. So there's all sorts of people all along the way. You think of Shelly at the office, you know, rest in peace, um, Peggy, at the office and Ray, everybody all along the way, you know, there's a bit of a falling out that's, that's mentioned in this book. I mean, Vic, Vic Wilson, there's a falling out, Ian Grandy, I suppose there's a falling out. Ian's falling out, I suppose is more in the eighties book. I just noticed that as I was proofing it today. Um, but, um, but yeah, there is, there is this, uh, this great continuity through everything they do. And, uh, and it made for a, a good stable career without, uh, with also without, you know, any sort of financial scandals either along the way. Martin, how about the addition of Terry Brown? He joined on when they were recording the first album. How did that boost the band's confidence to bring him on board? They loved him right away. They loved that he was English. They loved all their English bands, Cream and Genesis and all that stuff. So they, they loved having this this uh, exotic foreigner in into their camp doing this. Uh, but he's, he's still early on, as Getty says. I think it might be even be in the second book. Again, this is something I might have noticed today. Um, but, you know, he says we all grew up together. We all developed together. The great thing, though, about Terry is that... Um, you know, we escaped the 70s with all all of those records sounding pretty darn good. I mean, you might you might complain that perhaps Caress of Steel is a little thin on bass. Maybe even Farewell to Kings is a little thin on bass. But 2112 sounds great. Hemisphere sounds great. Fly by Night, I think, sounds great. The debut sounds great for what it is, 1974. So um, he does a good job with them. He uh, He's not in there, um, you know, uh, tearing apart the songs. He's not that kind of producer. He's more of like an like an engineer producer. But but essentially for this demanding music, which is essentially progressive rock and heavy metal smushed together like a like a Reese's peanut butter cup. Right. I mean, basically, Rush is inventing progressive metal for this challenging music. 
Terry turns out to be perfect Johnny on the spot, and he essentially gets them a very clean, pristine, you know, perfect high fidelity sound. If, like I say, maybe a little, maybe a little light on bass here and there. Yeah, I, that's one of the things in the book that I found most interesting is how he just came in at the end and saved that first album. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they were not happy with. Um, they were not happy with the way things were going. Um, so the album is a little bit of a pastiche of, uh, of two different producers. And I think the album sounds good. I mean, one thing people forget, that record for 1974, growing up in the 70s, there weren't a lot of heavy metal albums to choose from. And that was a really heavy album for 1974. I mean, up to that point, you had you know a, a, a big whack of Black Sabbath albums and some Deep Purple and Your Eye Heap. Uh, you know, Bluish Occult had just started. They weren't that heavy. The Montrose album is awesome and it's heavy and it's probably the best American album for a lot of years, probably all the way up to Aerosmith Rocks, I would say. That Montrose album is classic. So that's 1973. But, uh, you know, Bad Company is just starting. They're not going to be that that heavy. I think of Bad Company because it reminds me a little bit of uh, it is a little bit Led Zeppelin meat and potatoes type of a record. But, uh, you know, it's a, it's a record that in conjunction with Getty's voice, you know this strange novelty voice and the fact that it's a pretty heavy album and the fact that it's an album that sounds a little bit led zeppelin-y it's going to get attention and it did get attention and they basically got a record deal right away we were really surprised to see how integral john rutsey was in the formation of the band in its early days can you talk a bit about that and how important he was yeah one of the cool things, of course, with the movie, one of my favorite things about the whole movie was, you know, doing all that research grind and looking up stuff and interviews and finding footage and stuff. And then one day I I didn't happen to be there at the time, but one day uh, a couple of the other guys were rummaging through stuff at the rush office and uh, they found this videotape with uh, with basically uh, an odd format with a yellow sticky on it that says, what the F is this? <laughs> and we get that back to the office and that turns out to be that awesome, awesome high school footage of the band playing live. The only live footage there is of John. Right. Um, you know, a full set professionally shot by a TV station with all these rare songs on it and stuff. But to answer your question, that's where we see, you know, John is essentially the MC of the band in the early days. He's the guy announcing the tunes and all that. So he's he's kind of like the Paul Diano of the band, the little bit dangerous guy, the, the ace freely, right? The, mm -hmm. the party guy, he's not taking care of himself, even though he's a diabetic, he's partying a little too hard. And as Alex talks about in the book, uh, Alex maybe in Getty too, he, he seemed to be into a little bit of the drama of the friend stuff, like ostracizing people. And, uh, and you know, he's always keeping you on eggshells. And there's that story about ripping up the lyrics and that. So, so yeah, he's, he's kind of like, he's different from Alex and Getty, who are the child childhood you know high school friends who with the grounding john's a little bit the 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 flashy rock star type right and uh and so there is this odd dynamic in the band you know who knows if he's holding them back from being a progressive metal band um but but essentially you know the narrative is that you know had it continued it probably would have been a little more of a glam bad company led zeppelin type band the story goes that John left the band because of health reasons, but it really was a lot more than that, though, wasn't it? Well, it's pretty much mutual, right? It's, uh, you know, it, as as the guys dance around it in there, Vic Wilson and the guys from Rush and everybody, I mean, essentially, it's like it was a mutual understanding, more or less, 
and probably more on on the side of the non-John Rutsey side saying we we can't deal with this guy we can't have him we got to move on he's he's slowing us down pretty much right um so yeah i mean it was more or less um you know it it, it was touchy but it but it was it was kind of like we can't continue on with him and 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 also it was a little altruistic as well i think as alex mentions in there it's like had had we had we gone on with him he probably would have killed himself he probably not suicide but he probably would have been a been a casualty of the road you know had he been all over the road with them in the states so yeah it was just it was just basically figured you know we we got to move on right and so when they move on of course they get neil after that first meeting with Neil, they already had a couple of songs, uh, maybe Anthem, I think, that they had written and he was playing on. And that is a perfect sounding song for Neil to be on. Would Neil have joined the band and would they have been the band they, had, they were if they didn't have like those kinds of songs ready to play? Well, I'm trying to think of what else was on that high school show because there was another Fly By Night song or two uh, in that high school show uh, with John Rotsey. Um you know, no, basically he came in and, um, yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I don't know. I don't know what made him say yes. Maybe it was perhaps desperation, but I, uh, but I think part of it was they clicked personally right away. They joked around, you know, they, they, uh, you know, basically Monty Python and things like that. So they, I, I think they had a good audition process rehearsal and and alex and getty you know pretty much were really really wanting him after they saw how good he was um and they liked the fact that i mean i remember the quote about he reads books or whatever right so they thought (laughs) you know neither of them had a lot of uh you know propensity to want to write the lyrics they thought maybe this guy could write lyrics as well so they loved his drumming they got along great with him so i mean it basically just all all fell into place i mean he you know i i argue i suppose he he unlocked their latent love of progressive rock and somehow a light bulb went off and uh and they they basically transformed and fly by night like i say is is um you know the first progressive metal album of all time it's hard to think of any any anything uh comparable you know grasping for straws i think of always uh like king crimson or sticks or kansas um there's not much to to you know led zeppelin people would even say in a, in a more caveman way led zeppelin cream the who um but uh, but essentially no this was this was literally like you know progressive rock with a distortion pedal I mean that that's really what it was and right off the bat they were and and no one ever basically jumped in on their genre for the rest of the 70s they were alone in making this kind of music all through the rest of the 70s so you think the fact that they created this new genre of music is that the reason it took them so long to climb to the top is that the reason it took them 10 years to be profitable really it's a really good point i mean a progressive rock was pretty big b heavy metal was pretty big but this thing they were doing was provocative. But, you know, it, it essentially had the same fan base that Aerosmith and Black Oak, Arkansas and Mahogany Rush and uh, and Uriah Heep and Kiss and Thin Lizzy and UFO and Queen had. It literally is that blue jean army from the Midwest, right? Um, that's that was their core. That's where they they hammered super hard and 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 kind of kind of made it out of that that uh, area. But um why did it take them so hard? So, so obviously they had a stumble with Caress of Steel. They came back with a basically a similar album with Twenty One Twelve, but I guess they've stuck around this long. Their reputation as a live band was good. They were getting a little bit of radio play. The first album 
made some waves. The second album made some waves. The third one, not so much. Um, so th they stuck around. They played hard. They toured hard. They were always up and down the States and in Canada. So, you know, eventually, I guess people got it, Steve. I, I mean, I suppose that's the, that's the point is, is that eventually uh, you, you couldn't ignore them, I suppose. Uh, Farewell to Kings comes out. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's just as inaccessible as 2112 and Caress of Steel and, and Hemispheres comes out, and it's still pretty inaccessible, although they have a hit on Farewell to Kings with Closer to the Heart. Um, but, you know, I mean, Hemispheres doesn't really have any hits. The tree's got a lot of play, I suppose. But, um, yeah, I suppose it was unique. Uh, that was that's a, that's a thing. They're in their own lane. There's no one else with them doing this progressive metal thing. Yeah. So so all these things come together. Strange voice comparisons to Led Zeppelin. Even a bad review is as good as a, a as a good review in in some ways. You know, bad press. Um, so yeah, there was a, there was a confluence of event running events running their business good, and uh, and eventually um, it caught on. Yeah. There's a lot of talk about Led Zeppelin in the book. Uh, usually people are saying that that Rush doesn't sound like Led Zeppelin. I don't really hear it either in the first album, but there is a, a quote in the book about how they do share a kind of genetic code with Zeppelin in that they are very experimental like Zeppelin. Like one one second you'll have a, a going to California and then the next thing it's cashmere. And Rush can do the same thing. They can they can do the the intro to A Farewell to Kings and Cygnus X1 on the same album. Yeah, I, I wouldn't push the actual comparison of the composite of, of the songs and the albums too much. I mean, Led Zeppelin will do a folk song and a blues song and a heavy song and a reggae song. They'll, they'll do a bunch of different stuff, right? Um, Rush will schmoosh all that together in one song. The other thing that's, that's comparable between them, I mean... Definitely, Getty had a little bit of Led Zeppelin mannerisms on the first album with the ooh yeahs or whatever. But he, no, I don't think he sounded like Robert Plant. I never did. Um, the other thing, of course, that is comparable is they're both power trios, essentially. You know, one has guy with a mic, but they're essentially uh, three guys with instruments. Um, so there is that interplay and, and a lot of space in between them. A busy bass player, I suppose. Um, John Paul Jones did not have the... Um, you know, the attack that Getty had on the bass, the distorted mid-rangey attack, of course. Um, yeah, John Paul Jones, you, you, I, I mean, um, John Bonham, you can't really compare to Neil. Although, you know, oddly, those are probably the two most famous and inspirational and most beloved drummers in the world. And and no, Alex, Alex and Jimmy, well, that's an interesting one. I mean, I, I almost, uh, I've never thought about this before, but I, I do see some similarities between them. Uh and throw in a little Pete Townsend in there as well. Like Pete Townsend is known for texturing and coloring, uh, but Jimmy would do a little bit of that as well, and Alex was uh, Alex would do a lot of that as well. So yeah, it's funny. I never thought of this. I mean, Alex is kind of like a like a cross between Pete Townsend and and Jimmy Page. What band, Martin, do you think was Rush's biggest influence in the early years? Was it Yes with the time changes and the cryptic lyrics, or is it another band? It's kind of frustrating. I mean, you, you read the stuff from them and they keep bringing up the same bands and it's usually Getty that talks about them. I mean, Led Zeppelin comes up a lot, right? Cream comes up a lot. The Who comes up. Yes, and Genesis. But but to, to say, I, I almost can't even answer from their point of view. But if you're asking me, like, like where, where do I feel like there's a lot? I mean, I, I do definitely feel the Chris Squire in Getty more than the... the um, 
you know, the Jack Bruce, that's his name, right? Jack Bruce. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On him. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I definitely hear the Chris Squire in him. Um, you know, you really don't you, see, see the thing is they mentioned Genesis, but you don't hear any Genesis in Rush. And I don't know if you hear much yes in Rush either, other than other than Chris Squire. Um, so, but but I feel like you do hear a little bit of Led Zeppelin in in Rush, and and it's not so much again, like I say, the uh, you know you think of all those Led Zeppelin songs, and they don't really sound like Rush songs. It's more in the uh, the the power trio excitement and the excitement to be a heavy metal band, you know, as you mentioned, Jerry, like the idea of being creative uh, as well across the albums, right? Yeah, speaking of albums, let's start talking about the albums. So when you get up to 2112, those albums, like you said, Caress of Steel is kind of like 2112. They have the same kind of structure to them, the long songs and whatnot. But then comes A Farewell to Kings. That's like a left turn completely. Well, okay, so I don't know about that, but I'll tell you my memory as a kid. So basically, um, I think 2112 is just a better version of Caressa Steel. They really did not change their philosophy at all. It's just as inaccessible. It's just better done, right? And it's got some songs with more focus and some heavier songs, and I think it has better production. Farewell to Kings, we were ticked off when that album came out. I did not like it because it was too mellow. I mean, we just, we wanted heavier the better, right? There was not enough heaviness on the album. There's that one one little piece of Cygnus X1 where he goes crazy and starts screaming. That was cool. Um, and a few other things were okay. But, uh, but I thought a little bit of the bass was clipped off the bottom. It was too progressive. There was too much acoustic. But, you know, at the same token, that was when I was starting to get into drumming and I bought the big drum kit eventually. But I think I was, you know, to be honest, I think I was just as influenced by Peter Chris as I was by Neil. Um, but, you know, I was getting into drumming. So so when you're getting into bands and you're getting into music, you 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 do get into the progressive stuff. So my mind was opening a tiny bit, but still I, I was basically a metalhead. Right. So I would say, um, you know, you, you say, Jerry, it's like like really left field. But but basically the two before it were pretty darn left field, too. You know, I mean, this had uh, this had uh, long songs on it as well. But uh but yeah, I mean, it had the single on it, so I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think it's a it's about as let left field. But uh, yeah, come to think of it, I suppose if if you break it down, I never really thought of it this way. I would say there's there's at least a clutch of conventional rock songs, even on Twenty One Twelve, but even on Caress of Steel. Certainly, lots of them on Fly By Night, and then almost all of Rush is is conventional rock songs, and that. You're right. It's kind of thrown out the window on on a farewell to Kings. Yeah, I just think if you like you said, if you had a history of listening to Twenty One Twelve, the bombastic album in many ways, and then you buy a farewell to Kings, and it opens up with a you know twelve string guitar outside with birds chirping. Yeah, yeah. The whole the whole recording in Wales thing and that, and yeah, it's uh like I say, as kids, you know, so I would have been 14 years old. We were basically thought, you know, what, what is this uh, fancy pants, almost English crap, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, no, I mean, give us uh, g- give me a, so this is the time of, um, what do we got here? So we got Aerosmith draw the line. We've got Ted Nugent, uh, cat scratch fever into weekend warriors kisses at their height, right? I'm loving kiss at this time as well. So we've got, you know, um, what do we got at this point? Rock and Roll Over's been out. Um, Love Gun is out, right? 1977. Blue Oyster Cult is there. You know, they're not that heavy, though, right? Also, Spectres. But, uh, you know, 
You've got Moxie and Derringer and Tease and Nazareth and Deep Purple's gone at this point. Black Sabbath's still around. So no, but but basically all we cared about was heaviness and this was not a heavy album. So I want to ask you, Martin, about All the World's a Stage. Live albums in the 70s were much bigger than they are now. How important was that album for Rush? I think it was awesome. I mean, this was the golden era of live albums. They put it out at a perfect time. It was a triple gatefold, which was so cool. Um, you know, this is this is the era of Frampton Comes Alive, Blue Oyster Cult, On Your Feet or On Your Knees, Thin Lizzy Live and Dangerous, UFO, uh, Strangers in the Night, Unleashed in the East, um, even Almond Brothers and Humble Pie. Like, live albums were a big deal. It was really cool uh, to have live, Kiss Alive, obviously, and Kiss Alive, too. Um Aerosmith live bootleg. Um, but no, this was a good, fiery, heavy live album. That was the other thing. It was really heavy. I mean, it was um, this was a little bit like Kiss Alive in that you got kind of more explosive versions of these songs than you got previously because they were pretty staid and sterile on the studio albums. And here they were just rocking out. I mean, it was a you know, for for that what year is this is late late 76, right? So this is like mm-hmm. uh later later in the same year as 2112, right? So it's like that perfect, perfect year for live albums, really. And uh, and so we love that. I mean, it basically, it, it almost like reinforced or underscored how this was essentially a heavy metal band. And if you read all the reviews back then, I mean, Rush was just basically considered a heavy metal band, like Caveman, right? Here, here we're talking about them as a progressive rock band, but no, I mean, the press just considered them like, like absolute uh, Neanderthals. And then after that, after A Farewell to Kings, we have hemispheres now what was your since you were buying the albums fresh back then what was your first reaction to hemispheres it was almost like the shock of this is the new rush had set in from a farewell to king so when hemispheres came out it was like okay it's kind of similar to farewell to kings but i liked it more because i thought this is the best sounding rush album of the 70s um i thought it had a nice rich bottom end to the drums it had bottom end to the bass the guitars were really powerful i mean i thought it had really good guitars the writing was not much heavier than a farewell to kings but essentially you know we could appreciate the fact that it was essentially alex with a distortion pedal from start to finish i mean the whole album is is pretty much heavy heavy rock i mean if you want to talk about what is the quintessential progressive metal album? This is probably it. The, the entire album is heavy and the entire album is progressive at the same time. Like I say, the writing is not, I mean, it's, it's, it's fairly melodic writing. My favorite Rush song of all time is on it, Circumstances. So yeah, I mean, I was pretty much on board and I'm, I'm also becoming more of a drummer, so I'm into it. Um, so yeah, I, I thought it was really cool. And to me, you know, to this day, I think a lot of Deep Rush fans and myself included might, you know, on any given day, consider it their favorite Rush album. I mean, I might I might go with Signals, but I also might go with Hemispheres. And that album, Martin, was so difficult for them to produce and record. It's been said that it almost broke the band. It was just so difficult. Is that why they decided to veer away from the long, epic songs? I, I don't know if I buy that completely because when I look at 
permanent waves. It's it's just as proggy and just as complicated. Um, but yeah, the one thing Getty always talks about is how it was more or less done in keys that were hard for him to sing. That was one thing. And yeah, a lot of those songs are really pasted together. Um, so um, yeah, I, there's there's nightmare stories about La Vila Strangietto, for example. But uh, yeah, I, I think um, they, they had decided. I mean, that's more important than what we think. I mean, they had basically decided that we cannot do this again, right? But but the but the laughable thing is they essentially do do it again. I don't see I don't see a big huge lick of a difference between this and permanent waves. Um, I, I think they're just as just as complicated and weird and and all that. And and they're long songs. Okay, so they don't have the twelve minute songs anymore, but but they still got a few pretty long songs with a lot of parts all over permanent waves. A rush opened for Kiss quite a bit, as you mentioned in the seventies. How important was their relationship with Kiss? And how do you think that shaped their thinking when later on they became headliners? I think they got along with Kiss and Kiss treated them pretty well. Um, You know, I I suppose they looked at Kiss also for various things what not to do. Um, And even musically, they realized they were very different from Kiss. But I think they also appreciated what Kiss was doing. You know, it's, it's almost like. I could imagine them looking at those guys and saying, you know what, different strokes for different folks. Um, they're obviously, they're, they're, their crowd loves them. We're, we're appreciative if any of their fans like us. Um, so they're, they're, they're seeing this great gamut of bands, like all my favorite bands Rush essentially toured with all, all through the uh, through the 70s. It's pretty amazing that, uh, you know, they're out there on the same circuit with the likes of Finn Lizzy and Queen and UFO and all these all these great bands. Right. Um, yeah. I don't think they ever played with Black Sabbath or Deep Purple. I suppose there's a lot of bands they didn't play with that uh, that I that I appreciate as well. Right. Um, did they ever play with ZZ Top? That's an interesting one, too. Another power trio. Right. Um but uh, but no, I think uh, I think basically, um, you know, I, I think it's fond memories all along. They, they probably saw how to do your business also uh, around Kiss. You know, you've got a couple of A-type personalities in Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons. Those guys are really serious about what they do. And uh, and I think all parties, including Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons, realized that Rush was doing a very different thing. But they could they could appreciate what Rush was doing as well. Yeah, that's interesting because. You know, obviously, musicianship-wise, it couldn't be any more dissimilar between uh, Kiss and Rush. But what they did have in common is that they were unapologetic about the music they were making. Kiss wasn't the most sophisticated band, but they were just like, this is us, you love us, that's great. And Rush did the same thing. Yeah, but although there, there's a whole extra level of sophistication that... that uh that is abstract and and you know it's it's like it's like realism versus abstract painting or modern art or whatever like you could say that kiss was more sophisticated with their songwriting you could right you could say that they were writing better songs and rush might even admit that because of the whole you know narrative of where they went in the 80s like you know i could i could almost see them saying you know what Kiss was better at writing songs than we were because look at the songs we're doing now. These are better than the songs we made in the 70s, right? So so there is all this abstract stuff about connecting with an audience. You know, it comes down to that Beatles, Eagles, Billy Joel, Fleetwood Mac, Tom Petty thing. Like, what is a good song? What is the platonic ideal of a great song? Uh, you know, is it something that connects with millions and millions of people? So Kiss had that. So you could say, you could say on certain levels, Kiss was more sophisticated than Rush. 
Now you talk about the live show, Martin. Was there another band in the 70s that toured as relentlessly as Rush did? I mean, they pretty much played every other day for a decade. Yeah, but pretty well most of those bands did back then. So so I'm, I would be hard-pressed to name a band that slacked off in the 70s. So I don't know if I could even find one for you, Steve, that, that, that I would say played less. I mean, I just don't know off the top of my head who was slackers about the whole thing. Back, back then, kind of, that's the way you did it. So I would say they were probably just in there on the, on the average, right? Hmm. Later, they definitely got the reputation in the 80s and as the 90s where it wore on. They did get the reputation of slacking off and ticking off fans in certain certain markets for not showing up enough, right? Oh, really? Oh, yeah, certain. Oh, well, definitely. I, I don't think they ever played Australia. I just kind of that just dawned on me recently, right? Um, but they, they were not regular goers to Japan and they were not regular goers to odd countries. They never went to India. You know, they, they were not a band like Iron Maiden and Deep Purple that went all over the place. Europe was even an expensive proposition for them. So they, they kind of toned back on Europe. Even in Canada, up here, uh, a lot of places complained and Rush complained back to them that they didn't feel the love in certain parts of Canada. So, you know, Rush definitely was a band later on that I could say uh, that I could say was at the lower rung. So at the lower rung of things. So in the, but in the seventies, I, I agree with you. They toured as, as re- relentlessly and mercilessly hard as the other bands. But like I say, off the top of my head, I don't know who took it slack in the seventies. I don't think anybody did. So what do you think that is then that they toured so much in the States? What is it about the audiences in the States that are different than the audiences in Canada? It's not so much the audiences. It's more like they realized this was a good business model. It was a good idea to do this. They had some success in the States with that inroads into Cleveland. So they, so they had that anchoring St. Louis, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Cincinnati, that whole kind of area. They did well in the South. They weren't, they weren't a massive, uh, you know, I would say coast band right off the bat, but they eventually conquered all that as well. The Americans more or less just embraced them. I mean, they, they spent a lot of time there. The problem with Canada has always been, um, that, uh, that all of this, all of the places to play are few and far between and spread across a large, you know, expanse of land. But having said that, when you actually are from Canada, you don't have the the passport and the visa problems either and the going going through the border. So, uh, but, you know, it, it is a kind of an interesting part of the Rush narrative that they never felt that they did well enough or received well enough or loved well enough in the Maritimes. But the Maritimes was always hard to get to. It's hard to drive all the way zigzagging all the way over to Halifax and Moncton. There are no really big cities over there. Um, it's basically you're going to play Moncton and Halifax and maybe St. John. I mean, these are these are cities of, you know, 100 to 200 to 300,000 people at most. Right. Uh, so it's hard to drive to. you got to fly in so put that aside they always did great in montreal montreal loved them quebec interestingly enough when we had our magazine brave words and bloody knuckles a heavy metal magazine you know we always heard this stat that that the the province of quebec is 50 percent of all um heavy metal sales they love progressive music they love power metal progressive metal heavy metal so rush always was you know, adored in Quebec City and Montreal. But so you had Toronto. And then after that, you got to go way out to Winnipeg and then way out some more to Calgary and Edmonton and then way out to Vancouver. Um, so it's just a pain. And, um, you know, they did it. They did it regularly enough, but but it always was, you know, an extra chore. It's much easier to just just bounce between uh, all these cities all over America. 
And did money have something to do with that, Martin? Was it more financially sound to tour the U.S. than Canada? Well, I don't know. I mean, like I say, it is, it, it's much worse. The money and the, and the, you know, the problems with visas and passports is much worse if you're actually not from Canada. So they didn't, they didn't have that, you know, obstacle. But, uh, but no, I mean, essentially every Canadian city was was like any american city so you'd get the same kind of crowd but i mean there'd be you'd have to bounce back and forth like like a lot of bands would basically rabbit hop from you know rochester buffalo into ontario and then back or they would go from seattle and spokane into vancouver and back that kind of thing right so it it always is a little bit of work but but no i mean they they basically um they were embraced by and the other thing is there are all these tour circuits that they could be part of. So when they were a support act, there were all these packages they could jump on and off all the time all over the States. So that's the other thing. If you were a band from England or a band from the States, there was less activity happening north of the border. That activity was all bouncing around, bing, bing, bong, Black Oak, Arkansas, and God knows who, right? All, all these crazy bands, Spooky Tooth and whatever, right? Uh, you know. <laughs> They're they're all going all over all over um, Blue Oyster Cult, of course, uh, all over the states all the time. But uh, like for example, I'll I'll give you an example. Bands like REO Speedwagon in Kansas and Black Oak, Arkansas, they practically never came up here. There are certain bands that just uh, ignored Canada. So um, so there was a lot of activity to jump on in the states. So that's that's where you spend your time. You mentioned in the book, Martin, that Rush is one of those love it or hate it bands. Why do you think that is? Is it Getty's voice? Is it something else? Well, it's definitely Getty's voice, but there's also this idea that the critics do not like progressive rock and the critics do not like heavy metal. And Rush was doing both in your face. And, um, you know, and there's there's a little bit, uh, you can understand a little bit back to this idea of um, what's the perfect song. The next the next thing right beside what's what's really a good song is what is best for the song. And Rush you could say, have the bad taste to overplay on all their stuff, right? But if you're the only band doing that, you're cool. You're you're unique. You're you're really like there's a there's a there's a certain bunch of fans who will love that, that you are the only band willing to to turn fly by night or closer to the heart into something where you, you know, the bass player and the drummer go ding 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 bing boom all the time, right? So but but the critics, the Rolling Stone types, the type that would maybe put you in the hall of fame sooner than they got there would say, no, that's just in bad taste. You can't do that. Oh, what, what a big ego you must have as a drummer, you know, or what a big ego you must have as a bass player. You didn't have to play that bass line. You could have just done as Roger Glover calls them teenage eighth notes. Right. Um, So it's interesting. So you, you could say that, that a lot of people were just annoyed by the amount of playing rush thought they had to do in these songs. So, so you had that, so they're thinking these guys have big egos and they're pompous, right? Um, you have the you have the uh, the innate hatred of progressive rock and the innate hatred of heavy metal, and then you've got Getty's voice. But we love them. That's all that matters. <laughs> you refer to a lot of other '70s bands in the book, Martin Aerosmith, Kiss, Styx. Is Rush just as important as those other bands in the '70s? Absolutely, and and over time uh, they become even more so because some of those bands fade and some of those bands stumble and do things that you don't like. I mean, Rush maybe does that as well, but Rush basically in 1980 they became a headline act forever 
with a massive show, as massive as anybody's. I mean, people Kiss gets all the credit for having a big show, but Rush probably has a bigger show than Kiss, and they probably almost for for decades probably had a bigger show than Kiss, right? Um, so, you know, people forget that kind of stuff, right? Um, so they they remained a massive band. They got bigger and bigger all the time. They had uh, tons of integrity, basically. You know, you you could say that, for example, let's pick Styx, for example. Um, Styx is a band that had their heyday, and during their heyday, they were triple platinum, I think, for three records in a row. So they were bigger than Rush by a long shot, but that heyday went away and never came back. I mean, they're a great live band, and they've gone on and done all this stuff, but, but they more or less stopped making lots of records. Aerosmith, on the other hand, became super massive um they became really 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 big sold more records than rush um so aerosmith and rush you could say aerosmith is kind of on the same stature kiss never sold as many records as aerosmith probably they're kind of in the same camp as rush but they also people love them and they're celebrated for the continuing you know live presence being in your face so a lot of bands faded i mean blue chicago was bigger but then they became smaller Ted Nugent was bigger, but then they became smaller. He became smaller. So, yeah, I mean, when you when you look back at it, I mean, Rush essentially has got to be in the absolute very top tier in terms of the impact they leave after they're gone, because they were basically killing it as a live act and still making records all through the 80s and 90s as much as any of those bands were. So absolutely, they were they were absolutely at the top. So this book, Martin, is out on Tuesday, May 12th. When can we expect the next two installments, the 80s and 90s? So Limelight, Rush in the 80s, comes out October 2020 this year. And uh, uh, what's it called? Driven, Rush in the 90s and in quote marks in the end, comes out uh, spring 2021. And so that takes you right up until the end of the band. So yeah, that that's it. I mean, this one is out. Uh, I've I've had them for quite a while for well not quite a while two three weeks so i've been at martinpopoff.com i've been signing and shipping them out of the office here feverishly furiously um you know signing different things each time not too many different things i only got four different things i signed but no i out of my office i mean my main my main business essentially every year is uh, not so much royalties or, or the writing or advances or any of that. It's actually being a mail order guy. So I, I anything that I have in print, I have copies in my office that I'm signing and shipping all the time. So at martinpopoff.com, I've been sending out uh, this this first one uh, quite a bit already. So that's the place to get it, martinpopoff.com. That's where we go to get the book. Yeah, yeah. Best place for now. <laughs> the, na- the name of the book is Anthem Rush in the 70s. Martin Popoff, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate you being with us today. Thanks, guys. Great questions. You guys, Obviously, you guys know your stuff, so I, I expect that. But uh, no, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks so much. So, Jared, Martin Popoff, I mean, what a knowledgeable guy on Rush. I mean, he knows everything he about does. this band. He knows everything. He does. It was great talking to him. We could have talked to him for four hours, probably. That's a lot of research he did. Well, the great thing about it is he not only knows about Rush, but he knows about every other band. This guy has written a biography on pretty much any band you could think of. Yeah, he's definitely a good partner for Trivia Night. Yeah, no, it's good. I mean, if you want to compare Rush to Aerosmith like he just was, I mean, he's the guy to talk to. He knows everything about Aerosmith. He knows everything about Rush. He knows everything about Led Zeppelin. 
I was listening to his podcast. He actually has a podcast called History in Five Songs. History in Five Songs. That's it. I was listening to it today. It's great. So when you're done listening to our podcast, you can listen to his. Yeah. He doesn't talk about Rush all the time like we do, but if you're a fan of all sorts of bands, he's the guy to listen to. Yeah. So anything else jump out at you about the interview? Something you didn't know that you were surprised by? No, I mean, I, I'm with you. I was surprised by um, the early years with John. Yeah. I knew that John had left the band because of health reasons, but I had no idea that there was such tension between he and Getty and Alex. Yeah. So I didn't it, know that either. Yeah. So it seemed like the end was going to happen whether John was sick or not. Probably, yeah. You can follow us on Twitter at RushFanCast, Instagram the RushCast, email Jerry at the RushCast at gmail.com. And Jer, please, please give me a quote. I do have a quote. Nice. You ready for this one? Oh, I'm ready. Born ready. Leave out the fiction. The fact is, this friction will only be worn by persistence. That is beautiful. Isn't it? Have a good one. Bye. Thank you.